After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Everybody, welcome to Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus with David Silver, my compadre, and uh, another podcast. And today, we are uh, blessed to have somebody we don't know, which is mm-hmm. going to be great because we're going to find out all about him. I mean, we just met, and uh, David has—he's done his research. But before we get into that. Um, we, we just have to abide by our uh, guru, Duncan Trussell, and uh, continue to encourage everybody to uh, help and support what's going on here. Now we have the MindPod Network as well, and the MindPod Network has a bunch of different incredible teachers of heart wisdom, Ramdas and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Krishnadas, and of course us mind rollers, us aspirants to uh, to the garden. The garden of what, Dave? Give us the, the mind. We haven't talked about this in the ages. Mind oh, rolling. The, what yeah. the word mind rolling yeah. mean? Well, um, it's, the gar- it's not the garden of earthly delight, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, Bosch's painting of temptation and sin. It is um, kind of the garden of cultivating Awakeness, awareness, happiness, really. Ripening, and, uh, ripening, ripening, ripening and awakening. So that's ripen. what, uh, you know, that's our grand aspiration. So uh, w- let's quickly go through this uh, because, again, as, as of last time, we get our feedback from people going, you know, if you're going to tell people to go get onto Amazon and bookmark your wonderful link either to the individual podcasters, Mind Rolling or... Jack, Sharon, Krishnas, Ramdas, tell us what it is that we can purchase there. So, David, do you have anything this week that you can recommend at all? I have something. Um, but what about you? No. No? <laughs> no, I don't. Really? I'm sorry. I mean, I could recommend the, you know, 1,600 books behind me, but um, I, I didn't. I didn't, it just didn't spring to mind, but I, we continue to uh, suggest that because we, we've been accused of our low-hanging fruit friends, uh, if you just go to Sharon Salzberg on Amazon, Sharon Salzberg, there's a number of great books there, and uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein are our Buddhist friends. And let's not forget Ramdas, who has you know multiple books, right from the beginning, be here now, through all the other books that he's done 
and they're all, you know, they're all sort of timely. It's not like they date. Um, they absolutely do not date. So you can go in any of the panoply of Ramdas books and choose any one or two on Amazon and and get it, and you'll see where we sort of come from in a way, although we all come from an individuated consciousness. That Ramdas has had a huge effect on us. Sharon Salzberg is our friend and writes beautifully. So it's sort of a general recommendation, which I know doesn't satisfy everybody. Uh, but, you know. I have some specific. Take it for what it is. <laughs> yeah. Very informative you are today. I have a specific thing. It's called, and you'll like this, The History of Rock and Roll in Ten Songs, okay? By Greil Marcus, who I believe you know. Uh, it's, it's his most inviting book ever, finds the cosmic meeting in music, fact, and fiction. Did you know about this book, Dave? You told me, and I bought it for our friend Shiva for his birthday last week. Oh. And um, I, so I took a look at it before I packaged it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it looks Graham great? Marcus, one of the great, great, great rock critics. You know, there, there, there weren't a million of them, but he, he is a guy that can extrapolate from just rock and roll music into the cosmos, into life, into, in, into in the enrichment of life by that cultural norm, form. Mm. And it's well worth reading because Grail's work is always... I didn't know him actually wrong, uh, but I, I was a fan, you know, in the 60s and 70s. He was the guy that wrote the most articulate stuff about rock and roll and always inspired you to think about beyond it, beyond it. What was its worth? What is it about? And in the reviews of this book you suggested, people have said that this book is not really about the 10 best songs. It's about, it's about the form. It's about the genre, and it's about the enlivening aspects of it. So mm. it's a stimulating book for those of you that maybe don't know those 10 songs, and those that do, I think you'll enjoy it. And I have one more for you, okay, because I love the blues. This is about all music today. I mean, because as David and I came up together from the 60s, and we're going to talk to our guests a little bit about that, uh, it was all about music as one of the triggers for us to turn us inwards. And so I, I love the blues. And uh, Dave, do you know Gary Clark? I do. I saw him recently. Oh, you're kidding. So he mm -hmm. has a new record out. And uh, it's, it's a live record. They have not been able, he has not put out a record that really emblemizes his incredible guitar playing and and blues feel and so they did a live record so uh highly recommended gary clark jr live all right so uh, that's another product that you can go to amazon and use our link and that helps support what we're doing and support the MindPod network and which is rich with so much uh, blogging and videos and articles and podcasts, and it's a real destination, so we encourage you to go there. Is that it today? Dave, do you think that's enough today? Well, as I let you down with specificity... Yeah, you really did. I would say <laughs> that um, it's always good to read something that you don't know anything about sometimes. And um, if it's rock and roll, then it's rock and roll. If it's Buddhism, it's Buddhism. But um, if you go to our website, you will find recommendations there. Uh, and uh, that's, Tons, tons. That's... And you know what we're doing? You don't even know this because we're, we're going to talk about this. in our. We're having a meeting tomorrow, Dave, around yes. MindPod. And we're going to get every one of the podcasters to recommend a list of uh, books, music, films, 
that uh, help them to go inward into the, onto the path and that they can share with, uh, with everybody out there. So that's going to be, uh, um, I think, a highly desired element of the new website. So that's coming soon. Okay. Yeah, how about that? Um, well, we're done, and we're so thrilled to have our guest here and that he's so patient that he sat through that and uh, without as much as a, a, a yawn. So, <laughs> Raghu, you do the honors. Well, David Wagner, and uh, David is somebody I met through one of our uh, low-hanging fruit people, Mirabai Bush. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she highly recommended that we get together. It's been a couple of months, eh, David, in the making. But welcome yeah. welcome to the show, and Thank we're happy so to much. have you. And and I do. Uh, we were just before we uh, went live. We were talking about uh, David has a name, just like I have uh, Ragu, that w we got uh, in India. And I, I miss, and it's Harshad. And Harshad. Uh, <laughs> that I want you to tell us a little bit, even though uh, I I know that uh, you know you're you're gonna be. Uh, coming out with a, a book, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but talk about the name uh, and what it means, because I love it. Yeah, Harshada, it, it means, it comes from the root harsh, which, you know, in, it's very different in Sanskrit than it is in English. Harsh in Sanskrit, it means a kind of um, joy and delight that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. So Harshada could be someone who is full of that or someone who brings that. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my spiritual name story. How did you get the name? Um, my, jeez, uh, this is 1996. Um, I just, uh, I felt like a lot of the other people were getting spiritual names, so I thought I would ask for one. And that was the one I got. From? Oh, from uh, Swami Chidvalasananda, who was, who was my guru at the time. Uh-huh, yes, who um, I have met as well. And so maybe David, too. I certainly have. I went yeah. up to the uh, ashram several times, the gorgeous, beautiful ashram. Mm. And uh, for those that don't know, that's in the, uh, the Muktananda lineage, really. And mm. uh, it was always very, very special to go there. Uh, Nityananda, if we're going to talk about Swami Muktananda and, and uh, Chidvadalasananda, I think we need to absolutely mention, beyond mention, uh, Swami Nityananda, who was a siddha, uh, like Neem Karoli Baba, like Ramana Maharshi, and so mm -hmm. on, Ananda Mahima. So a very, very special uh, being. And at the same time, too, it was like that batch came from Siddhaloka altogether or something. Yeah, no, it's an amazing thing that in, in the last century. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, Ramdas, talk about uh, Ramdas' books, the Be Loved Now book, which in which he goes into what the, actually the differences are between, you know, what a guru is, what a saint is, and what a Siddha is, and the differences mm -hmm. therein, and, uh, and lists uh, many of those uh, Siddhas that, we're alive in the last century. So, uh, so David, we, uh, we always, when we have a guest, we always ask them to, uh, to relate a little bit of their experience uh, 
coming into the moments, which we call triggers, in which we, we were all set upon the path of mm. knowing our true selves, whatever which way you want to call it, and what were those triggers for you uh, in your formative years? And, and yeah. just give us a little bit of background on who you are. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I came from, I'm from the Midwestern United States, and <clears throat> I come from a family of uh, alcoholic, unhappy people. We'll just leave it at that. Mm. And um, I also, at a very young age, got into drugs and alcohol and was just kind of following along that family tradition. But um, luckily for me, I was much worse off than the other people in my family. And the reason I say luckily is because that forced me to get sober at a young age. So I found myself finding the spiritual path in smoky Alcoholics Anonymous clubs in Peoria in the 80s. Mm. And my first teachers um, were these, you know, redneck, you know, working class guys that, that taught me about um, self-knowledge and introspection and prayer and meditation and that sort of thing. Uh, about a year and a half into that process, uh, one of my old drug buddies got sober and he and I had taken a lot of acid together when we were kids and he had come across uh, Be Here Now. And just thought it was the coolest thing and for sure knew that I would think it was the coolest thing. So he, he lent his copy of Be Here Now to me. And, um, you know, I'd never seen anything like it in my life at that point. And it just felt like it was speaking directly to me in so many ways. Now, at the same time that that was happening, my mom, who had cancer, started to die from the cancer. And uh, I was newly sober. I was the only sober person in my family. Mm. So it, a lot, I was about 18 at this point, and uh, a lot of the responsibilities to tend to her uh, came on to me. And so I'm reading Ram Dass, and I'm learning for the first time about impermanence and reincarnation and Maya and all this stuff and practicing the cookbook for a sacred life, you know, as best I could with no teacher, you know, I remember trying to do fasting and eating walnuts and doing the asanas from the little diagrams, you know? Um, anyway, so I'm doing all that and then attending to this very grisly death. She had a very, um, painful and, and, um, soul-tortured kind of a death. She was terrified to die. And um, mm. while I was, you know, in the first, you know, weeks of my education in Eastern teachings. And um, so then she finally died. And I remember um, standing there over her, over her body in, in the bed there in her bedroom. And I had this razor sharp insight and that just said, A, I'm going to die. Like I got my mortality a hundred percent in that moment, seeing my mom there and B, I'm not going to die like that. 
Mm. Um, I'm not going to die. And in those days, what I said is I'm not going to die without getting over myself in this lifetime. And that really, I felt like that was really like an initiation moment. Um, mm. And then I sort of gave the book back to the guy who loaned it to me and I wasn't going to find a guru in Peoria. And that seemed like an essential piece of the puzzle. And um, that was that for that, for that second. But from there, I pretty much didn't look back. Hmm. This is very, very, very good for our audience as much as we know them, which is that we get letters, David, all the time from young people, uh, younger than ourselves, younger than you, who are, you know, in their twenties or whatever, or even less, who are having hard times in hard families in yeah. hard scrabble places. Yeah. Not just in America, but in Romania, yeah. in Australia, yeah. in Britain, so on. And I think it's very good for them to hear this from you. Because yeah. I think some people think that, you know, so called spiritual people, you know, just sort of come out of an egg somehow and yeah. suddenly spiritual like a deity. What they yeah. I'm hearing from you is that this these presentiments, these perceptions and desires to grow came from some really tough yeah. really tough beginning. Talk about that a little bit more about why sure. is that do you think that's sort of common in people these days that alienation within society, within families can actually push people into a into a place like you I are? wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's common in society because like unhappiness and unconsciousness is common in society. Right. But right. among people who get conscious, it seems it seems kind of common, you know. Um I I don't want to get all pundit on us or anything, but you know, the 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 Bhagavad Gita talks about this notion of yoga brashta, which, you know, they say that if a yogi dies before they complete their, their sadhana, they'll be born into the family of yogis so that they can resume in an early age. Mm. And um, I used to hear that and just be like, you know, fuck you, Krishna. <laughs> I was not born into a family of yogis, you know. Mm. But as I stayed on the path and met so many other people, and in my seva for many years uh, in the ashram was working with teenagers. I was really blessed with that seva. That was uh, my first teaching gig was teaching teenagers. And what we saw is that there's different kinds of yoga brashtas. Like there are the yoga brashtas that were like the kids of the ashram people that would like grow up on the guru's lap and, you know, chant for their first birthday and stuff like that. Um, but there's another kind of yoga brashta that, that I, I guess people like me are where they find the path at an early age in an intense way, but not because their parents were yogis, but because they come from some situation of yoga. You know, that they have to come through some kind of a shamanic sort of wound gateway. And um, that, I, I, you know, I, I know now that that is another way that that yoga brashta phenomenon happens. Because we would see, you know, plenty of kids that were born to yogis that couldn't have a spiritual concern if you forced them to, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, for sure. I've, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. And, and, the, and I'm really grateful for it because, you know, what we say in, in, you know, like 12 step programs is that, um, you know, it, it, it's religion is to save your soul and spirituality is to save your ass. <laughs> and, you know, that's what I feel like, you know, it's true for me, but also true for the people that I work with as a teacher 
it's not like because it's cool to do or because it would be fun or there's something exotic. There's no, there's no kind of cool factor in it, at least the way that I present it. But it's just like people who really need it or else they're going to just suffer. And um, I'm really grateful that, that I count myself among that, you know, Mm. it's, it's like what I call, it's like the shamanic gift slash curse which is like once somebody has like been through addiction or they've been raped or they've, you know, who knows, have had combat trauma or whatever their thing is, a superficial life is no longer an option. You know, they're either going to have some kind of a, a, a deep life of, of misery and, and contraction or they're going to have to find a way to have a life of evolution. And I just think that that's just such a blessing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to make one little point here, and it's slightly delicate, but uh, and it has to do with uh, sobriety. And yeah. in your case, you know, you went through a lot of a lot of stuff. And you did mention that you had one friend that you took a lot of acid with. Yeah. I I guess I do point out uh, in, in our podcast and at any time just talking with people that, uh, there's, I separate out psychedelics from drugs because, uh, now, and they can be abused like anything else. Sure. But they, uh, and David and I, uh, have talked about this, uh, at infinitum about mm. the value of, what happened when we came up in the late 60s, early 70s, the value of, of acid uh, in sure. particular. And of course, and, and even most recently, uh, Ramdas has talked himself about, uh, he said, I, it was part of his preparation for yeah. being able to be with a, with a Siddha like uh, sure. Karoli Bama. So sure. uh, just to get you a little bit of your feedback there yeah. in your personal experience. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that that now if if you look at it from the sort of reincarnational yoga brashta point of view, um, you know, I think that that the same thing that drew me to the to the spiritual path also drew me to to I mean, when I was a kid, that was what I most liked to do. Um was was take acid and um and but that's not what ended me up in the 12-step program. The 12-step program was more like I, I just like I'm just one of those alcoholic people, you know, like it's it's in my blood. <laughs> um, but it, it was funny because when I uh, the last time that I was visiting Ramdas, I got to ask him about this. Oh really? Um, because somehow uh, the notion of sobriety came up, and um, and I said, you know, I've always wanted to ask you because people know my path. And they know that, you know, you, Ramdas, is one of my, you know, early influences and teachers. And some of my students ask if if they should take psychedelics to have that experience if they haven't already done it. And I said, so I'd love to hear what you have to say. And in his very Ramdas sort of way, we, we were in the car and he turned around and he said, I want to hear what you say. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I tell them that they don't need to. And he said, yeah, he said, they don't need to. Um, and we had a longer conversation about it, but 
you know, it comes up a lot in, you know, these days, like these days, it's very in vogue to do these ayahuasca mm. ceremonies, you know? And so I get asked about it all the time. And it, it is a fine line with Burning Man and all this sort of thing. If we're talking to the younger audience, because, you know, LSD, ayahuasca, mushrooms is just right there on the plate with MDMA, ketamine, cocaine, you know, and Oh, wait, wait, I got to separate cocaine out from MDMA and ketamine. uh, Okay. I got to because they are definitely uh, psychedelics, both of those other drugs. And and cocaine is nothing but um, getting high. Okay. Anyway, I'm the the protector of psychedelics. I get it. That's my job. I get it. I, I totally get it. I have no bone to pick with that. But but what I will what I will say to the seekers that come to me, just knowing where they're at and knowing that they're coming from a quick a quick fix mentality oftentimes. Um what I'll say is, you know, one of the things that I learned from Ramdas is when when Maharaji said to him, You can take the psychedelic and see Christ but you can't take the psychedelic and become Christ. And so, you know, that's, that's usually, you know, the, the conversation that I'll have with people because I'll just find that whereas it was certainly the case for me, even when I was a kid and with your generation where those things were doorways to, to a spiritual life. These days I find that people will use them as a substitute. Mm. Um, instead of doing the the actual work, they'll just take a pill. I mean, and that's that's a thing that like translates across the board in so much human behavior. I feel like these days. Yeah. So um, th- that's the <laughs> that's, that's the conversation about that. Let me just uh, say, since we're talking about Maharaji and acid, uh, when we when he talked about it while we were there. The second time Ramdas went back after he had, you know, he gave him, I, this is a famous story. Maybe yeah. some of you guys don't know it out there, but it's a fun one. When, uh, when Ramdas was first in India, Maharaji said, you got some of that yogi medicine? And he mm-hmm. assumed he meant acid. And he gave him a bunch and he took it and nothing happened. But then when he went back home, he thought, geez, maybe he just threw that over his mm-hmm. shoulder while I wasn't looking or some shit. Mm-hmm. And then he came back the second time when we were there all together and Maharaji said, give me some more. And he gave it to him a whole, like a bunch of acid, crazy as it is. And he one by one took them and put the pill, each pill in his mouth. So there was no, you know, he was just fooling with Ramdas. You think I didn't take this. And then he played like, Oh, you think I'm going to go crazy or by crazy about <laughs> Ramdas is thinking, I don't know. And in the end, he, what he said about it was, this is good for people in the beginning. Mm. But, and then he said the thing that you quoted, although a little bit differently, he said, you get to have Christ Darshan mm. for a few hours, but mm. then you come back and, mm. And the best way to get high is feed people. Mm. That's, okay, that he said that all in the same, uh, you know, in the same statement. I love that. And oh, love there that. was people who asked him about in that moment taking acid, and uh, he he would tell them go 
be alone in a cold place and do it as a spirit. You know, he didn't say it as a spiritual thing, but he, that that was yeah. the intention. Yeah. And here's here's another funny little story. While while I'm thinking about this, there was one devotee who was very close, Westerner, to Maharaji, uh, and uh, his name shall not be spoken from my lips, or else he'll get after me, because this is sort of a, an insider <laughs> story. But he took acid. He went down and he hung out with Maharaji, right? And Dada, who was uh, one of our mentors, Dada Mukherjee, who talk about books, people out there. Dada Mukherjee, by his grace, mm, the best book about Maharaji there is. Beautiful book. Yeah. And so, anyhow, Ma Maharaji didn't say a word. He And this guy was just seeing all of the universes in one fell swoop. I mean, he was gone. And he just sat there. He didn't say a word. Maharaji didn't say a word. Dada didn't say a word. And then suddenly Maharaji said, well, okay, let's go somewhere. And, and so Dada, uh, off they went. And he just tailed along and nobody ever said anything. It was like, it was great. Mm. Two weeks later, okay, another Indian devotee's wife said to her husband, I want to try acid. Her husband went, are you out of your mind? You're not taking LSD. I mean, this is an Indian family back in the <laughs> early 70s. Forget about it. So she was insistent. So the husband said, well, why don't you go and ask Maharaji? And so she went to Maharaji and she said, you know, I want to take that LSD that Ramdas gave you. And he said, I don't know anything about it. Ask so-and-so, the guy that it." Been there on acid, and he never said a word about it. And then suddenly he's telling him to recommend that's the person to talk to. So uh, it was an unusual relationship because all of us back then, I don't think there was one per. Maybe there was one or two people, but that had been a formative introduction to being able to understand the 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 different levels of consciousness necessary to be around such a being. So you're yeah. right. I do believe though that at this time, you know, there's more we were young and naive, right Dave? I mean, we this happened and we didn't have any idea and we trusted Richard Alpert and Tim Leary. Yeah. Basically. And I mean, what year did you graduate from high school? I don't know. Ooh. Jesus, 65, 6, yeah. 7, yeah, something like that in yeah. there, mid-60s. Graduate. I, I took off and went to Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. I was an immigrant from uh, Canada, and David came mm. here, and he was an immigrant from England. And we, we have very parallel stories because we both bumped into bumped into the psychedelic and music. Uh, those were two things. Yeah. But going, let's let's move on with you because yeah. well, I want to hear. I to ask, David, I'm sorry. Um, as a, a real segue from this, you know, that uh, Christian does his workshop on Sunday. He talked. He got many questions that were sort of a little off. But w basically, his answers about what should we do, you know, were <laughs> similar. You know, be kind to people, feed people. That's the savor, yeah. and that will do it for you. And I, you know, if you read the uh, His Holiness's uh, interpretation of the eight uh, thought transformation that piece that he did, he says exactly the same thing. You know, he says, um, in the world, you must follow altruistic path. Mm. And that will bring you, quote, your high, although it's nothing to do with being high. Now, having looked at, at, at some of the things you've done, I know that, for instance, in after the horrendous tsunami in the end mm. of 2004, which we all saw on television, 
Yeah. And we were all, you know, it, it blew us all away, obviously. But you went there. Yeah. And that is sort of, I, I mean, I don't want to to be, you know, obsequious here, but that is a differential that I really respect. Because just like the people who went to West Africa in the last three months mm-hmm. to deal with the terrifying yeah. Ebola situation there. And I want to know, I have a two-part question for you. One is, what were, what were your emotions at that time to push you to do that? And the second one is one that the Dalai Lama answers this question a lot, which is, he says, the important thing is to do these things without pride or self-pride or mm-hmm. w- wishing to attract praise. So yeah. the first question is, what <laughs> what was the, what was the you know, what impelled you to go there? Yeah. The second one is, how do you sort of yeah. deal with that within yourself? You know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what, what impelled what impelled me to go there is um, I had just sort of done a visioning of, of my life. And, um, you know, I do this every few years and it, it just made this vision that like what I would really love to do is be based in New York, but be able to be um, sort of mobilized. Um, my, my partner at the time um, was also uh, my wife, my wife at the time, actually, um, it was also into humanitarian sort of stuff. And, and we wanted to be able to like respond to events in the world you know, as much as we wanted to. And, uh, and then careful what you ask for. I think it was the next week is when the tsunami happened. And um, we had connections in, in Sri Lanka, um, and especially in Eastern Sri Lanka. In those days, it was a rebel held sort of area. And, um, and so it's it's a long it's it's a beautiful story. It's too long, I think, to tell right now. But it was a magical sort of a thing where we just got instant confirmation from Grace that it was the it was the way to go, and um and and so then we went there, and we went there several times actually. It, it was we did a, a number of different things, but I, I'm laughing because it's also a beautiful teaching about karma yoga where, well, for one thing, it, it was just drilled into me so deeply. Uh, one of one of Muktananda's teachings, which is, you know, if you do a good thing, you should forget about it as quickly as you do it. And you should never forget any of your sins. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of intense. Whoa. <laughs> it's kind of intense. But, um, but it, and it's just I'm laughing because I hadn't even thought about Sri Lanka in so long. And uh, there was a, an interview that I did this morning and they asked me the same thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, geez, we did do that. Um, but, you know, it's a funny thing about karma because whatever ideas that we have going to do something for someone, there's almost no way that you can do anything that's going to help someone even close to how much they're helping you by allowing you to help them. <laughs> you know, it's like this crazy thing with seva and, 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 and karma where doing something like that, you know, is perfect of a relief project as you can ever do. It's only a drop in a bucket usually. Mm-hmm. And you just get so enriched by the experience 
that if your heart is even a slightest bit awake, it's just hammers you with humility because, you know, you get so enriched from it. And it's such a deep thing, no matter how hard, no matter how much suffering you have to go through as the relief provider. But then you get in a plane and you go home and you have all these stories and photographs and and people ask you about it on podcasts and all this kind of stuff. And, and it just, it just, could almost make you feel like a worm (laughs) as opposed to feeling like, Ooh, I did this great thing. Um, But, you know, for sure, I, I feel like that is a super important piece of sadhana and I love that uh, Raghu added that, the, that piece to that story, if you want to get high feed people, because I feel like that's what the younger generations are like the, the yoga boomers, the yoga, yoga boomer generation really mm-hmm. lack, you know, because they didn't learn, they didn't learn yoga in ashrams. They didn't learn it from gurus that where there was a seva component. They just paid for it like a product. And the seva thing, the karma yoga thing, I think is so essential, um, you know, maybe for the ego work part of sadhana, if nothing else. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I love that term, yoga boomers. Yoga boomer, I know, I think I just made it up. Yeah, it's good. Totally you should, use it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one thing that I'm remembering when we talked, when we first talked, David, mm-hmm. that you, you told, it's, it's, it's a bit of a story, but I think I'd really love for you to tell it. And it's, it's, it's kind of how we connect, meaning mm. you and I, when you told me that story in a way, way beyond words. And it was about uh, Ram Dass and, and yeah. how you met and yeah, going to yeah. India and all that. Please yeah. tell that story. Sure, I mean, sure. Obviously, Ram Dass is elemental yeah. for who who we are uh, David Silver and I yeah. and uh, and the work that we're doing these days so this was yeah. this and David hasn't hasn't heard this so yeah so i mean you know one of the things that i always notice about maharaji's shakti you know of, of compared maybe to other siddhas is his his like way of kind of haunting me <laughs> and just showing up you know anyway so um I was in Delhi for something. I don't even remember what now. And when I, I was done, I had a few days off and I wanted to, I wanted to like go into nature, have, you know, like a nice experience with the mountains or something. And I didn't have that much time. So our Indian friend said, oh, you have to go to this place called Nainital. Nainital, it's just lovely. There's a beautiful lake and it's just, everything is very fresh and it's, you know, cool and, and we, so we go to Nainital, and it's a trek from Delhi to Nainital. But we're still just into the foothills of the Himalayas. And um, Nainital, we didn't dig it at all. It was just <laughs> packed. It was just like, you know, a million Indian tourists and honeymooners, you know, packed into this tiny little lake village, you know. But I noticed as I looked around uh, that there were pictures of Maharaji and all the different hotels and, and, you know, tea shops and stuff. And, um, so I asked, I think a, a Chaiwala, you know, why is Maharaji's picture here? Uh, did he come here or something? And he, he kind of looked at me and said, well, no, his place is just right down the, right down the hill. And without knowing it, 
I had gone just, you know, a five minute car ride away from Kanchi, from the ashram where Ramdas met Maharaji, and in a way where my spiritual, at least the Eastern part of it, began journey. So we jumped in the car and we go down to the ashram, and I was just flabbergasted. You know, I was so happy to be there and it was so sweet and there was no one there really, um, just a few attendants. And, um, and I was meditating in, in what used to be Maharaji's office, I believe is now a meditation room and really nice energy. And as I was coming out of meditation, I heard that voice, you know, mm. and, and the voice said, you should connect with Ram Das and tell him what you're doing. Mm. Because I had just recently sort of come out of the ashram and started teaching on my own. And, um, you know, we, it was sort of like, you should let him know. He, he, you know, planted this seed in you so many years ago, and now this is what, what it's turned into. So I get back to New York, and um, through a long process, I find some secretary or something that said that if I get a letter to her, she can get it to Ramdas. So I start writing this letter and, you know, what am I going to say? Because at that point, you know, it'd been like 20 years or something. And Ram Dass had not, it wasn't just be here now, but like I'd listened to all of his, like every tape in the tape library. <laughs> uh, my, my asana teacher, Gabriel Halpern in Chicago had all of them. And so during the time that I was doing my yoga training, I'd listened to all of Ram Dass's tapes and read all of Ram Dass's books. And it was like his voice was like in me. And um, so, you know, how am I going to capture all of this? So I'm working on this letter and I, I shit you not. One day I'm, I'm literally sitting there at my computer working on this letter. I get a call from my buddy, Vidura Barrios. And um, he was working for a yoga magazine at the time. And he said, uh, Harshada, uh, do you know who Baba Ramdas is? And I said, Yeah. <laughs> And he said, do you want to go to Maui and interview him for the magazine? Oh, <laughs> and so the next thing you know, I'm sitting in Maui with Ramdas telling him this story. Mm. <laughs> and it was just, it was, so, it was such a cool thing because, you know, and of course he, he sort of had tears and just pointed at me and just said, he's gotcha. <laughs> he's gotcha. He said, because if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> mm. So in there, I mean, just so many things, even when I met Mirabai, you know, it was the same kind of thing where we were in a meeting and um, I don't know, it was like, there was a little bit of spiritual materialism being thrown around the room. Let's just say that. And she and I just, we didn't know each other, but we just kind of kept looking at each other like, oh, geez. And then afterward, when we were mingling after the meeting, mm. she, and she told me she was a Maharaji person, I was like, oh, I knew it. I should have just known it because, you know, the Maharaji people always sort of appear in, in those situations. And, and it was always kind of like a, like a lifeline or something. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, Ram Dass talks about uh, 
soul pods. This is, uh, mm-hmm. we, we came up with this whole thing, you know, we're part of the MindPod network. And then I, I was working with some content and, and I heard him say, he actually told Jack Cornfield, yeah, you know, there are, because they've known each other forever. I mean, you know, a bunch of us have known each other, teachers, for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And, and he said, yeah, no, it's all about soul pods. Mm-hmm. We get together and we turn each other on and help each other navigate the way. And then we share that. Yeah. And that's what we have in common. So that's what I felt when I, when I met you. Can you talk a little, Dave, am I, uh, I'm, I'm uh, hogging. No, not at all. No, I'm, you're I'm okay. just listening as if I was listening in a car. Yeah, you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, no, I just uh, tell David. Tell us a little about just. I I know that you you're steeped in in um, classical uh, Hindu philosophy, and I'm just wondering: uh, is there uh, have you had experience? Uh, mixing Buddhism and experience with Buddhist teachers and so on? No, I, for the most part, I, I really haven't. No. I mean, I, I feel like as a, as an author and as a voice, um, people like Trungpa have been, you know, big influence mm. to me. Um, <laughs> I, I have this funny thing where I, I have a tr- I, it's it's a long story, but I, I kind of had a mystical experience where I I experienced a past life, and it was in a Tibetan Buddhist context. Hmm. Um, but I have this thing where I love Tibetan culture, art, aesthetics, painting, jewelry—you know, all all the aspects of like Tibetan aesthetics. But as soon as I hear any kind of Tibetan Buddhist teaching or whatever, I have this funny reaction where I just get very bored like a teenager. Hmm. Like it's very uncharacteristic because it's not that I'm not actually interested in it or that it's great, but this thing comes up in me that's like, oh, shut up. I don't know. I just don't like I want to put my fingers in my ears. Like I can't hear one more thing about it. really funny and i've just come to peace with this aspect of it and mm. i don't know if i just got like a belly full in a past lifetime mm. or, or what funny. it is but um but yeah that's I funny mean, I, I get as much spiritual nourishment from listening to comedians these days <laughs> as i do from you know i i you know listen to louis ck right you know, a million years before i listen to a spiritual teacher these days <laughs> uh... It's funny because the reason I'm thinking about this is because, as as you know, I was supposed to be in New York and couldn't be uh, to take part in His Holiness the Dalai Lama's teachings, uh, which yeah. are just finishing as we speak. And uh, I have gone, oh God, almost, I mean, year after year for many, many years whenever I can take advantage some of it for me is literally nothing but darshan of the greatest human being that lives on that is on the planet as far as i'm concerned right now and some of it is occasionally something will come across that hits me in a place where it actually uh 
it's it's some kind of sartori experience where i go oh sure. christ i get that now yeah. and uh others of it is like today well yesterday i was in the afternoon and i was i it was on a live stream and i know that uh when i'm at the actual event with his holiness and you can look around and you see people falling asleep left and right nodding out because of the arcane nature of the teachings as you said yeah. as you were just indicating it gets really tough when they yeah. oh my god and uh i was doing it in my chair all by myself <laughs> i actually nodded out for a few minutes i couldn't yeah. believe it yeah. but but then there's the moments like this morning and uh, the teachings, uh, the essence of them uh, have been around emptiness and the mm -hmm. concept of shunyata, emptiness, and not in the nihilistic aspect. Right. And yeah. it, and I, uh, you know, to me, this is an extraordinarily important teaching. And it's not, and he even said that this is not confined to uh, Buddhism. This is in, uh, you know, in, in I mean, Buddhism came, you know, it's all from Nalanda, from the, mm. the, uh, the university uh, that uh, in the what 11th, 12th century, and uh, and he said uh, when he was 17, he became very interested in emptiness and the concept of em emptiness and studied it and practiced it. And uh, as he went over in 59 to India, continued that practice and had uh, his teachers work with him on it. This was a highly, one of the most important in, in topics for him in all of, uh, well, it's the, you know, it's a, an essential part of Tibetan Buddhism philosophy. Mm -hmm. And finally, he said, I can tell you today, although you might think I'm boasting, although I'm not realized in emptiness, I don't have total realization, I'm getting very close, he said. <laughs> and then he said, and now you could say that as the Dalai Lama, I, uh, you know, me telling you and admitting that I am not fully realized in emptiness, uh, you, you think I might be concerned? I'm not that they would take away my Dalai Lama status. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to happen. It was just the most beautiful human, mm. full of humility this being uh, who has realized these teachings to such an extent that he can uh, pass them on to us in that way. So uh, I guess that that's means so much to me. And when you said uh, uh, about uh, Trungpa that, you know, how that's somebody you could relate with, David and I talk about Trungpa all the time. And, you know, yeah. he's a major teacher for us. Sharp sword, very yeah. sharp sword. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. when we, when I, encountered him on multiple occasions you know i was hanging out with a bunch of bhaktas and lsd takers and people use the word love all the time sometimes with great depth other times with great shallowness um every time i went up to vermont and, and saw him uh it added it was a component that i needed uh even though i didn't quite get everything at that time mm. it was just a component and when we talk about cognizant emptiness and the Mahamudra and Dzogchen paths, uh, I would highly recommend to anyone who's listening, if they feel sort of like David said, very honestly, candidly, that, you know, it can be, if it's not your exquisitely own path, you know, then don't try and pursue it if, if it just makes you crazy all the time, because we've all got these extremely individuated and mysterious mm. journeys to make mm. uh, that connect with each other, but they don't necessarily uh, reproduce each other. 
Mm. And if they did, it would be so fucking boring. I wouldn't want to be on this planet. If we were all like, whoa, one guru, one bat. And yeah, yeah. Forget it. It's yeah. awful. Yeah. And just awful, a horrible Orwellian concept of spirituality, which would make me sick. But I, I, I do recommend to people, if they want to get close to the cognizant emptiness thing, to read Tulku Orgy and Rinpoche's books, As It Is, part one and part two. That's my recommendation. Oh, there you go. You finally got yeah. to it. <laughs> well, it's in response Thank to what David so said, which was the most yeah. honest response I've ever heard to that question. On yeah, right. <laughs> sixth podcast of ours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, David... Cognizant emptiness thing, which when... Mm. Krishna Das and Ram Das and the rest of us talk about love being the glue. Uh, there's a relation, a very profound relation between the use of the word cognizant emptiness and love. That emptiness can drive people crazy. It's like, okay, I die, I'm empty, I'm gone. Cognizant, there's the word. And I, again, I would say, uh, you know, when we coined this MindPod network thing, I was a bit a bit discontented with that because I, you know, mind and heart, but it's not really mind versus heart. It's really ego, I guess, with heart. Mm. Mind for the Buddhists is a very, very sacred word. Mm. Natural mind, beginner's mind, mm. all that. And I guess that's what I take from mm. Tibetan masters. And you know, David, I, honestly, what it is for me is if someone's been studying something that's been cultivated and refined over thousands of years, and then does six to eight hours meditation, whatever, a day for life, I've got to think that, you know, I can learn something from them and that I'm inspired by them because I don't do either of those things. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but I do respect what you said because sometimes when you talk to people, you know, it's all like, okay, I like Tibetan Buddhism and I like, you know, ayahuasca and I like, you know, cherry it, pie. It's okay, you know, it's nothing, it's all no. good. But um, sometimes one has to admit that uh, no, that path doesn't 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 glow for me at this time. But you and know, it's funny what you said, David, because you said maybe I was just, you know, so imbued with Tibetan Buddhist. Buddhist <laughs> yeah. But uh, let me say that the reason why I asked you that was mm. because what I get from you, David, is a tremendous groundedness. Mm. And not as Trungpa used to call us, uh, us Hindus, supposedly, which we weren't, mm. um, love and lighters. And, yeah. you know, and that bent towards, and what you casually talked about when you go yoga boomers, you know, and people yeah. that, um, you know, are engaging with yoga and not yoga. You know, the physical yoga. not Now, so my impression of how you work with people as a teacher yeah. is very grounded. And so that would have led me to believe that there is that uh, non-dual quality to yeah. what you do. Can you tell us no, about it a little? No, for sure. I mean, you know, all of, all of the, the wisdom traditions that, that I, really, I really dig are the non-dual ones. They're just not the Buddhist ones. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, like, Patanjali articulated the five kosha, right? He didn't articulate, but that, that's in the Yoga Sutra also, um, you know, with the, the soul and then the inner layers. And then the outermost layer is the body. And I add a sixth kosha, uh, which is what I, I call the, if it needs a, a Sanskrit name, I call it the karma maya kosha, which is the layer of our life. And all of our karmas and all of our life situations and relationships and 
um, projects and our vision. And I think that that is uh, essential uh, to you know, how I work with people. I'm not into giving people an escape or um, a sanctuary, you know, like where the meditation space or the yoga room is a sanctuary from an otherwise chaotic and fragmented life, Um, but rather to approach our practice as a training ground so that we can have as much, you know, like four-wheel drive wisdom, like it can go anywhere. So, you know, that's, that's the basic approach. And, um, you know, I, I've, one of the reasons why now I'm back to being Dave instead of Harshita is, is that I just took it upon myself to just challenge, do a challenge to just see if I could, I had a, a retreat to teach at Kripalu, a bunch of people coming. And I was like, let me see if I can teach this whole retreat without using one Sanskrit word. <laughs> I like that. And, and I did. And it was really cool. And, and it, it was, it was a great challenge. And also um, it's not so much about like who it speaks to and how it speaks to, but the people in particular that I work with are people that are overcoming suffering and giving gifts, you know, like they need to overcome whatever they're suffering from so that they can enjoy life but also take away whatever impediments they have so that they can really live their vision and give their gift to the world. And so all of that is very, um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not love and light, (laughs) you know, like I'm, I'm like a midwife. I feel like of, you know, midwifing people through divorces and new relationships and, all kinds of stuff that mm. is that is very um, you could say grounded or you know I call it crow medicine you know Which? crow like the bird oh crow uh-huh. crow medicine you know like you know at first glance it's like this black inauspicious thing but the deeper you look at it the more you appreciate its depth and and its you know ultimate mystical richness. Um, and you know, that's, that's the, that's the function that I feel like I play within the, the big sort of tally of different teachers who are doing stuff these mm. days. Fierce grace. No fierce grace, man. Fierce grace. Fierce grace is, is it. I that's mean, that's it. A, uh, there's a, a beautiful, uh, blog from Ramdas that we put out that just as dress is exactly what you're talking about around suffering and, and uh, and David, uh, it's it's on uh, Huffington Post. Why suffering? And David, uh, just uh, David Silver, just uh, completed a, a film uh, for the foundation that is called uh, "Cultivating Grace and Transforming Suffering," and it's everything that you've just been talking about and how people can actually engage that in their lives. And uh, in a practical day-to-day, here's you don't need to join nothing. You don't need to become exactly. a Hindu or yes. Buddhist or anything. You can use this wisdom yeah. to con- to uh, to transform your day-to-day life so that uh, you are uh, engaging with 
with uh, the suffering and the untoward stuff that happens to us uh, on a day-to-day basis, how to deal with our reactions. I mean, David and I talk a lot about just watching and looking at the news and and how all those triggers, how do we deal with those triggers? How do we deal with social action? You know, and uh, uh, so uh, we we really appreciate the work that you're doing, David. And I also want to mention, because we're coming to the close here of our hour, uh, that uh, David is uh, working on a book that we're all going to want to read and get that's going to come out in the spring. Can you, do you have a title of it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's a book for men, and the title of it is Backbone, The Modern Man's Ultimate Guide to Purpose, Passion, and Power. Wonderful. What a yeah, title it's that is. Right now to, to, to bring the men into the conversation and uh, develop real masculine paradigms for for transformation mm, great that's yeah lovely Talk about grounded stuff you know get a bunch of like middle-aged men in a room and, <laughs> and open up the can of worms with them and see what you get okay <laughs> oh thank you for being here david it's great yeah. I and mean, it's like everybody out there it's david silver and i are getting to know david wagner in in this <laughs> podcast in a way that's really lovely and uh, yeah uh, and how it's all full circle related to, of course, our connectivity with, through Ramdas and so on. So, David, yeah. we're going to do this again. When the book comes out next year Beautiful. in the spring, uh, we're going to talk about it and we're going to we're going to get with you again. So thank Beautiful. you. Beautiful. And, oh. you know, I just want to thank you. And, you know, without getting too schmaltzy or anything, um, I, I've I've come to an understanding of of how valuable um, elders are. And, you know, the two of you and your whole generation, I really respect and, and honor all of the trails that you've blazed. And, you know, I feel it's a privilege to just sit at your feet and have this conversation and um, be totally honored uh, by you giving me a seat on your podcast. So thank you so much. And, you know, I, I offer my, my deep that. respect and love. It's to our, it's our distinct pleasure. And some yes. of the things you've said today are such ground rules for this entire podcast that we do. Some of the things that you said were, were you know, that kind of wisdom that help. It really does help people it, rather than just be, you know, pontificating or making yourself. Yeah. It, if they listen carefully and read when you, the book comes out, men and women, I'm sure. Should but wait, it. wait. Meanwhile, David, yes. we need the URL, David Wagner. What's your URL? Oh, people yes. can it's contact you. Yeah, davidhwagner.com. Okay, everybody, you got that? You can get and with you, David. And if you put in David Harshita Wagner on Amazon, I got a bunch of guided med- meditation CDs on there. So, But through, you can get them through your site, no? David H. Yeah, I think it sends you to Amazon anyway. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So as long, yeah, as long as there's a portal for you to get there. You know what? You're going to, uh, why don't you give us a couple of links and we're going to put them up on MindPod Network. We're going to put them up uh, on, you know, and they can go through our Amazon link Beautiful. and get them. Beautiful. So uh, everybody, thank you for listening and thank you for your support for mindrollingpodcast.com. Well, you can go there and uh, and find everything else that you need to know about with all of these lovely teachers that we are now uh, cohabiting with on mindpodnetwork.com. And uh, David and David, thank you for a lovely afternoon here. Thank you, Raghu and David. Be well. Thank you, David. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.